the talk tonight is about um, goodwill aligned with wisdom. Uh, Loving kindness, as the Buddha taught it, is not just um, the love we get from pleasure. So it's a, a, a love that includes the pleasant and unpleasant aspects of ourselves and others and the pleasant and unpleasant aspects of life. So it is, uh, you know, in terms of trying to translate metta, it means love that is infused with wisdom. Because without the wisdom aspect uh, infused in the love, we tend to use love as a kind of manipulation or control. And um, this is a quotation from Sri Nazargadatta Maharaj, who was from India. And I feel like it's a great example of, or a great explanation of what this loving kindness is when it's infused with wisdom. When you know beyond all doubting that the same life flows through all that is, and you are that life, you will love all naturally and spontaneously. When you realize the depth and fullness of your love of yourself, you know that every living being and the entire universe are included in your affection. But when you look at anything as separate from you, you cannot love it, for you are afraid of it. Alienation causes fear, and fear deepens alienation. It is a vicious circle. Only self-realization can break it. Go for it, resolutely. So sometimes I think we get these glimpses of understanding how important this work really is, this, this uh, misperception that we all have of being separate and that sense of the alienation deepening because we're not inquiring into this. Uh, that it, it's such a tragic aspect of life that we, that we all suffer from. Uh, and then getting a sense that there is a way through that, through understanding, so that this is that the that the practices of loving kindness and the practice of wisdom that they're both important, that they're equally valuable because of with just as which if you're just developing wisdom, it often becomes a, a cold observation. It becomes the non-attachment becomes a hard, rigid detachment. So when love and wisdom come together, and of course this would be an ideal uh, vision of when love and, you know, the goodwill in line with wisdom, is that there's this um, affectionate awareness where with a series of moments where we actually meet what is appearing, no matter what it is. 
sound, sight, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, emotion. We need it with this kindness. Um, then because of this softness of heart with the changing uh, moments of life, we actually are able to let things come and go by themselves. And, and that it becomes more and more voluntary. So unconditional love, um, this goodwill aligned with wisdom. Uh, we talked about it earlier today, but it's that sense of um, that there really isn't a condition. There really isn't an if. And often when we do the practice of loving kindness, sometimes it will feel like that's all we will see. We are meant to see more and more of the conditional love as well as the unconditional. That's how we, that's how we um, see through it, by getting to see very clearly Oh, I, <laughs> I love myself if I have what I call a good sitting, right? I love my a family if they're acting like I want them to, versus that, you know, that edge always of can we find this connection or friendliness with our inner goodness that's always there, or the inner goodness in others that's always there. So a way to think of this is that we are not our behavior and no one else is their behavior. So you you find this inner goodness free of the behavior, but this doesn't mean that we don't hold ourselves or others accountable for harmful behavior. It's paradox. So when we hold ourselves or others accountable for harmful behavior, we often disconnect from their goodness or our goodness. And we get into blame and unworthiness and guilt and it just becomes this entangled knot of hatred or self-hatred. Alienation. So the Buddha taught that the proximate cause for the appearance of loving kindness is tuning into the inner goodness of a being. Uh, and the the time that I got a sense of this the most clearly was when I took a, a flower arranging course in Honolulu. And it was after I had taken a very um, traditional flower arranging course where there was no instruction. It was very um, like an old Japanese style with... Um, actually, the teacher didn't speak English. <laughs> she, she only spoke Japanese and... Uh, most of the class were Japanese speaking where I took it. But it was a, it was an, an old style way of teaching where uh, she would make a flower arrangement in the front of the class and we were supposed to copy it and um, somehow figure out something from just copying it. And again and again, and I, I wasn't succeeding at this style. Um, and someone told me about this other teacher who was a very different and it was kind of like the choiceless awareness of flower arranging. It was really amazing teacher. And she, the first rule was that you weren't allowed to make a flower arrangement. Totally opposite of this other class. And we were given three flowers. And you had your 
frog where you would place your um, in your in your vase where you'd place your flowers and you didn't look at the vase you didn't look at the frog you just would take one flower and you would spend a long time finding the most beautiful angle of the flower and then keeping that in mind without looking at the vase or anything you would just keep that angle in mind you would put that flower in the um, in the frog and then it got harder and harder each time she would be like on my case because I'd be looking I'd be trying to make something work and fit in my way that I wanted it to be and she'd be like no Michelle don't look don't look at your flower (laughs) it was so hard and you just look at this flower find the most beautiful angle and put it in don't compare it to the other flower just put it in by the third flower it is so hard really it's just like you want to make something that you want to make and what you would think is beautiful and it's like kind of you know, almost yelling at me, don't look, just look at your flower. (laughs) You know, and sometimes they would come out, in my mind, horrible, and other times they'd look lovely. But that practice of just connecting to the most beautiful angle uh, seems so similar to my beginning practice with loving-kindness. You know, just that practice, like over and over of knowing that we can find that um, pure friendship with this goodness that is that is deeper than behavior and that we all have and that's always there you know if you often ask people how they are and they're honest um, a lot of people don't feel seen or met or, you know, there's a, often a profound loneliness. And I find that it's so um, poignant that we can't find this interest in ourselves. You know, just that willingness to be one's own best friend, really, or I call it a, a sustainable love, but something that you will always be able to fall back on no matter what's happening. This connection with your own heart. So love and wisdom, to be able to love through these changes that are out of our control, that is the teaching. And that is the kind of loving kindness we teach. We don't we teach it as as best we can with a concentration, but also really you can't break the barrier between yourself and yourself or yourself and anyone or anything without the wisdom. It's the understanding that helps us break through where we might be able to accept ourselves if we're sleepy because we accept that energy changes or we accept that somebody else is angry because that's what happens people have anger and greed the Buddha also taught um, 
what, what is called or translated as the near and far enemies of the uh, four Brahma Viharas. And Steve's going to go into much more detail about this tomorrow night. But I just wanted to touch on it because it will come up. And it's important to know that this loving-kindness practice is a purification practice. When you touch, just like in the mindfulness practice, when there's a few moments of mindfulness, that will um, be like washing our mind, our heart, in soft, in warm, soapy water. You know, we always forget this part about we dream. <laughs> you know, it's like we're washing our mind, heart, body in warm, soapy water, and actually dirt comes out. And, it's, and we want it to come out, but we're ambivalent about it when it actually does come out. Meaning, in the metta practice, it will mean that you might see more self-hatred than ever. That's the only way you learn how to work with it. Or you might see more hatred, or anxiety, or fear, or lust, <laughs> you know, or wanting. Or, you know, it's just like, that's how you learn what love is on deeper and deeper levels. You'll have the, the glimpses of the goodness, the glim- and that the, you'll have glimpses of connecting to the loving-kindness. And then again, those however long that lasts will be deeply purified. So the Buddha said that the experience that seems so much like um, loving-kindness, but isn't. So this is the near enemy, meaning it, Ah, it, you just almost convinced, you know, when you're in love and you feel like it's so close to this loving kindness, but actually, you know, you're not feeling that for everybody. You're feeling it for this just this one person. This doesn't mean that that kind of attached love is wrong or bad or anything. It just means that it isn't unconditional love. So this is also important when we go through these to remember that it isn't saying that attached love is um, wrong. It means that it isn't metta. Uh, and there are many variations on this kind of experience that seem so much like metta, but it isn't romantic love, nostalgia, sentimentality. You know, there, there's so many. Uh, sometimes I call it Pollyanna metta. You know, it's this. It's this love that doesn't really wanna include the unpleasant, painful aspects of life or ourselves or others. And it's okay that it's hard. You know, the Buddha said it was rare, unconditional love. And yet, when you look at what you really, really want, it's usually to be unconditionally loved. Sometimes I feel like if we could just roll in, Steve and I could roll in an IV for each person in the hall and, and hook up just this, this massive dose of reassurance. Really, just everyone needs it. It's awesome. Just, you know, that just says, yeah, yeah, this, this moment's okay. Yeah, yeah, this moment, you know, oh, yeah. This, it's just that is how much reassurance we really need. So the opposite of loving-kindness is hatred. You could almost say that um, true love 
you know, we love that but phrase true love, but the true love will mean that there's a way in which we have included the unpleasant aspects of ourselves or others. I was in Vancouver uh, this spring and was watching in an early morning walk I was taking. Um, I was watching a dad with this young girl riding piggyback on his back, so quite young. She didn't talk yet. Um, and he was walking by each tree on the, on the side of the road and leaning over so that she could um, touch the bark of each different tree. And it was so beautiful um, to just see him encouraging her to explore without the words. Like he wasn't saying maple, aspen, you know, oak. He was just letting her, leaning over, didn't, wasn't going tree or anything. He was just letting her explore. And what I found funny was I watched her go by tree after tree and then she was leaning over and she wanted to explore this telephone pole. And he kept making her, like, not go to the telephone poles like he'd go to the trees. And it was just so funny because it just reminds me so much of how we are. Like, it's like that (laughs) thinking that this is the right thing to explore and this isn't okay to explore. You know, that's conditional. There was a great saint, Maya Baba, that moved from India to Virginia, and he went into silence for a very long time. And one of the most beautiful things he said to me was, um, when, when two people are angry at each other, they shout. And they use very loud words, And when two people are deeply in love, they whisper, or they don't need any words at all. And think of this just with yourself, with yourself. Like just like listening to your thoughts over the course of a sitting or the day, and and how loud they can be, or how when we're very quiet, how we don't need any words at all. So that when 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 we're yelling or feeling angry, it's usually when we feel the most separate. And when we're feeling that deep connection and friendliness, we whisper, or we don't need any words at all. And and just getting a sense of being out here again in this sacred wilderness, you get a sense of that hush, an outer hush that, that actually can become an inner hush. You can, I, sometimes I just say that to myself on retreat. I'll be like, Shh. <laughs> you know, just reminding myself that that kind of quiet, that inner quiet is possible. So when we sit down to do the metta practice, um, Remember, I just want to go over again that usually 
we start with what's easy, and that's a form of loving kindness. And I said it already today, and Steve will say it, you know, we'll say it again and again, but remember that if you find that yourself is difficult, then you wouldn't necessarily start with yourself. And you don't have to start with a human being. You can start with a lake, or a tree, or a stone, or the stream here, or something. It's really what matters is that there's some kind of... um, can be very, very almost imperceptible, but it can be a very quiet connection. It doesn't have to be some huge, cathartic, (laughs) overwhelming sense of connection, but there is some sense of connection. And we call that, sometimes it's translated as a benefactor, sometimes we translate it as a spiritual friend, Uh, but it it is a sense that there's some way that... um, we feel something. It's like, usually I'll feel that when I hear the sound of a bird. Now, for someone else, the sound of a bird might not do anything. But for me, I'll usually come back to myself and find myself when I hear a bird. There's a very amazing Inuit artist um, that I love a lot. That um, She's in her mid-80s now. And she has done, um, she's considered a national treasure in Canada at this point. Uh, But somebody asked her, like, why do you keep, why do you keep doing drawings of birds? (laughs) You know, she, she just does all these different beautiful prints of birds. And I just thought it was so funny because here she is mid-80s, she's still doing paintings of birds, (laughs) she's been doing them her whole life. And she just said, because birds make me happy. And, you know, this might sound really simple, but I just think it's really important. Like, here she is at 85. She doesn't feel any need to, like, change what she's drawing. Her her prints are very varied. They're very amazingly different. But within that framework, this is where she feels life. Life. And this is serious. When we talk about metta and finding yourself and finding a spiritual connection, this is no joke. This is like a spiritual friend is like life a lifeline. It's really what makes life worth living. If you don't have it, life is not worth living. And they're supposed to help us find this kind of sustainable love for ourselves. And so that's the direction of the practice. You start with something. You know, it's like when um, D.H. Lawrence was dying, you know, and he was from, you know, the north of England, you know, cold winters and had TB. And when he came to New Mexico, something came alive for him. Uh, And he left here and went back to Italy, where he had lived for a while, um, to die. And one of the last things he said was, if I feel any homesickness for anything at all, I miss the ponderosa pine in front of my house in New Mexico. So we're also like not making it up that you can start with a tree. You know, this is again not some sort of thing that we've inserted for uh, Westerners to make it a little bit more palatable. 
you know, it's more like what can help us find this lifetime to our, the life of our heart that tends to be so shut down. So that's what it's about. And if you spent this whole retreat with an easy something, that would be worth everything. And if you spent this whole retreat with yourself, if that's where you're inclining, that's where you should be. So it's not about that if you progress that you're going to be somewhere <laughs> that you like can imagine who knows what it is, but we come up with these fantasies about if we were better or good at this, that somehow we'd be somewhere else. But try to trust where you're inclining toward. Some people in the room might be inclining toward vipassana, not metta at all. And that's okay. And when, within that, when we start with what's easy, the, the, in, the encouragement is to see if, again, what's easy within that connection. Is it a sense of trying to receive the metta, or is it easier to actually send and wish well? Trust it. Please don't try to think that if I was doing better at this, I would be receiving, or if I was doing better at this, I'd be sending, or if I was doing really good at this, I'd be doing wordless abiding, or I'd be doing phrases. It's not like that. It's much more what we call, the Buddha called upaya. The Buddha was said to have perfect skillful means, perfect upaya. Uh, And it's starting to get a sense of actually what are the skillful means for myself. And we teach this in a way that hopefully you'll find your way with it because, of course, ultimately, we will want to learn how to do all of it. We'll want to be able to receive. We'll want to be able to give. And when the giver and the receiver disappear, when there's this deep immersion in the metta, there's no me or you, the duality breaks down to non-duality, there's usually this abiding. In the metta practice, we hold on to that. (laughs) And if you're not, if you've only done Vipassana, that will seem a little odd. But yes, you're supposed to actually kind of bathe in it, abide in it. And Steve uh, touched upon this this afternoon, and we will go over this plenty of times. But the um, when you separate out the practices of love and wisdom, the metta practice is traditionally known as a fixed concentration. And fixed concentration means that, say we had this room um, completely dark, and we put a candle in the front of the room, and we asked you to keep looking at the candle. And if there was a noise in the kitchen that called your attention, we'd say, ignore it, and just come back to watching the candle. And then if a knee pain happened, we'd say, ignore it, and come back to the candle. And if sadness happened, we'd say, ignore it, come back to the candle. That's fixed. You're picking one object, and you keep coming back to it no matter what. And it's um, a complete repression. 
and it feels wonderful because you're ignoring everything that's happening. You're ignoring change, you're, and it's um, the goal of it is solitude, rest, rest, tranquility, union, bliss. Um, and in the mindfulness practice, you're aiming more toward if a sound happens, you include it, hearing. If a, if a knee pain happens, you include it. You, you bring your attention and explore tightness, burning, whatever. If the pleasant sensation happens next at your cheek, you just notice light vibration. If sadness happens, you, you, you open to the emotion of sadness. You see, you're going with everything. But of course we can't maintain that and we come back to an anchor like the breath or sound or body. Um, you find a compromise of something to anchor with and rest with in that practice as well. What we hope for everybody is that once you start to learn the metta practice and you learn the mindfulness practice, that you learn the skillful means of both and they both can feed each other. Because at some point in the metta, you have to do mindfulness. You have to. You can't maintain it. And so that the instruction is, you do the best you can to, you know, be with yourself, benefactor. You're going back and forth. And if you hit a barrier, you'll, you'll shift. Or you're doing the wordless metta and you're starting to fill up the time and space around yourself. And then you open it up around yourself. And we will teach you that if there's a loud sound coming from the kitchen, to send metta. Or if you hear an airplane go over, you send metta to the beings in the plane. So you're starting to include things that are happening. If if sadness happens and it's very strong and you can't maintain the metta for yourself or the benefactor, then you would shift to doing mindfulness of the sadness. So you see, it's not... It's not, they're both, they both complement each other and you start to see how much each practice is a support for the other. In mindfulness practice, you keep it going until you'll use metta as a last resort. In the metta practice, you keep metta going until mindfulness of moment-to-moment experience is the last resort. But in both, you're doing mindfulness. In metta practice, you're cultivating again and again, mindfulness of metta. In mindfulness practice, you're, you're doing, you're practicing mindfulness of moment-to-moment experience. So isn't that great that you can, like you, you just learn to do one practice one way and then you fall back on the metta, and then you're doing the metta and you fall back on the mindfulness. It's a great way to go. That's kind of the short version. I think I forgot one part of that. Um, hmm. yeah, ultimately, both practices support each other so deeply that you need to repress less and less and less, and you start including everything that happens with great kindness.
In the metta practice, you will have a sense over time of, it's almost like we're planting a metta garden. And um, Steve will call it a metta field, or a field of metta intelligence. Uh, and sometimes when we say to incline your attention toward um, May my heart abide in loving kindness. You can say, may my heart abide in loving kindness with myself or with you or just in loving kindness or in loving kindness with all beings. Sometimes you might incline your attention that way and 30 minutes later you'll feel something. So in that style of practice, it takes a lot of patience and trust, but it will take hold. And you'll start to see the power of the mind or heart to incline towards something and then let just let go and see what happens. So that it takes more trust. But in, in any way that we do the mindfulness practice, whether we're doing it that way and with more of that wordless uh, metta and with that sense of filling our body with metta and then radiate, starting to radiate that out, um, or when we're doing the phrases. Either way, we're not trying to make the metta happen. And of course we're going to fall prey to that, to the forcing, to the striving, to trying to do it right. But ultimately, we're learning to use the phrases as a way to bring more deeper connection. And we're using that wordless abiding and inclining the attention to bring that deeper wordless metta connection um, And of course, as we do this, we will have doubt about ourselves and the practice. And the biggest obstacle in metta practice is um, starting to see the near and far enemies. We think something's wrong when we start to feel that judgment of ourselves and our practice. It's so easy to judge it. It's It's easier to judge the metta practice than the mindfulness practice. Because we, we aren't getting any feedback <laughs> when it's dry, when it's boring and dry. You know, we'll forget, oh, you know, we can't make this happen. In the mindfulness practice, at least there's some sense that you really, you know, can't make whatever experience that you want to be happening happen. It's, it's easier to get that. But in the metta practice, we'll have some idea that we're just supposed to sit there in total metta bliss for two hours. And it's a, it's a more immediate feedback system into um, when we're wanting more to happen, when, you know, when we're wanting more from a friend or we're wanting more from ourselves, when we're wanting more from life, that kills connection. And so that we'll, we'll be up against that deep longing um, to be able to control our experience 
and just let that be, let that longing be. See if you can feel loving kindness toward that and connect with that as that happens. The Buddha said um, that there's two rare and precious kinds of human beings in this world. Two rare and precious kinds of human beings in this world. One who shows kindness and one who appreciates the kindness shown to them. And um, this is so important in relationship to spiritual friendship and that Again, that easy being or easy place to love. It's to get how rare and precious it is. And um, you're cultivating that connection. You're cultivating the gratitude. For me, like most of my childhood, I went to a lake for refuge. And it was very serious. Like if I didn't have that, everyone else in my family were self-destructing. And I was very fortunate to have this inclination to go out there, and I would just stay by this lake as long as I could. Uh, And it would give me the courage to go back into the human world, you know, and then I would, you know, get overwhelmed, go back to the lake. Um, And even when I was five, like, I could get that sense of how lucky I was to have that. So somebody might put, pick a bookstore in a city where they went when they were a kid. Like it really, you really have to be careful of thinking it should be a something rather than what it actually is. And then over time, as you start working with this easy being, you will start feeling that um, gratitude as dependency acknowledged and how wonderful it is that we are that dependent on a lifeline, you know, to feel connected with ourselves, that that we again are that interconnected or that um, intertwined. I had um, such a lack of human um, connection in the way that I'm describing. Uh, And one time in my senior year, I got a job at night. I had a waitressing job in the day, but at night I had listened the year before to... It was almost like this Pied Piper near my house. I heard um, Jimi Hendrix playing. (laughs) And luckily for me like about a mile from my house in an outdoor theater. So I decided my junior year, I am going to work there at night this next year. And I had a job as an usherette. And I, I was lucky because they assigned me to, to stand right where the entertainers would come out down, uh, down the aisle to play. And they would usually come and hang out. And I had all these people idealized, like Stevie Wonder and the Supremes and you name it. Who was great? They were they were playing there that summer. Um, you know, Mothers of Invention, if you know who they were. But just like 
really amazing temptations. Um, and it, it was a good, it was almost like these stages of disillusionment, like with my idea of who they would be versus who they really were. It was pretty pretty profoundly disappointing (laughs) who they were as human beings. But their music was great. And it was very, I was very grateful to have that bubble shattered that young. Um, And there was one entertainer, Hugh Masekela, who was from South Africa. And he would come down the aisle and he was actually genuinely interested in me. And it was like he wasn't coming on to me. He wasn't like being an idiot. Like he was just like being a nice person in a genuine way. And he played seven nights, so I just like would get to hang out with him and talk with him. And um, it was really helpful for me. It like it. It's so short. The amount of time I spent with him was so short. But it was just that sense that somebody actually was interested. You know, and that's what we're not doing for ourselves. And in a way, what I have learned is that unless we have someone or some place that actually gives us that sense of reassurance that we are okay the way we are, we actually can't learn it. We have to learn it. So we tend to come into this world and think this should be a God-given thing. And if it isn't there, then forget it. We have to question these things. We tend to assume that. And in actual fact, we can learn it. We can immerse ourselves in this environment for 10 days and learn something. Because Mother Nature has the capacity to heal us if if we receive. If we receive. And of course, it's good to have that from a human at times. But, and of course, we don't get it in the amount or time that we tend to want it, right? It's like that's not how life is. But we can, as we sit down to, to meditate or, or go out to walk, bring up, call to mind an easy being, an e- or it could be the sun or the stars, something where we feel connected and start cultivating it, developing it. And the Buddha taught that we can do this. And he he described this um, experience of loving kindness as the experience of when a a mother cow gives birth to a newborn calf. And it's like, I like to remind us all that, you know, that calf is pretty big when it comes out. You know, this is not a, a pleasant necessarily experience of giving birth to a baby cow. Uh, and it can be father cow, mother cow, but it's that sense of when the adult makes contact, eye contact with the baby, the newborn. And it's knowing that this being, this newborn, is going to have to experience all the joys and sorrows that the parent cannot protect the newborn and that child, and that child's life, the parent has, has an impossible job. They actually can't protect that being totally. But there's that wish. There is that genuine wish 
if there's a healthy adult present, there's a genuine wish of wishing them well, that of course we want them to thrive, of course we want them to do well. That's connecting with another's goodness. And he's using the example of an animal, not a human, that there's, again, when we say like common sense that might be common but maybe isn't so common, but it's there in us, it's the same thing with a metta. It's like we're learning to relate to ourselves in this way. And then we're learning to relate to the person sitting next to us in this way. And we're learning to relate to the person in the back of the hall, or the front of the hall, or the cook, or the chipmunks, or the ants, or the flies. All beings. All beings are susceptible to being loved. In this way. And we don't have much training with it. And this is a training. I find that um, often when you get to know yourself or others, that often we have the kind of young part, but not that divine adult part. Some people have the adult part, but not the kid. Some people have the kid, but not the adult. But guaranteed, you usually don't have both. And so you'll kind of, you know, the more you get to know yourself or get to know others, you'll you'll get a sense of that. And if the person is more of an great at being adult, they usually need a lot of help at finding that baby cow. And I'll say to them, you know, go silently out there and go, yoo-hoo, <laughs> You know, you're finding your heart again. You're finding that newborn heart. And other people can get the newborn heart, but they can't get the metta for that. You know, it's like, that's the practice. The practice is bringing those two together. And that's the training, and we all need help with it. So there's that capacity to receive, that's the kid. The capacity to send, that's the adult. When you get them together, and they really come together, there's the wordless abiding. And we we all need that practice with all of it. But play to your strength. Go, with, go where it's easy and trust that. Trust that over the next days, at least for three or four days, we're going to really be encouraging you with what's easy. Keep being with what's easy. This is like stretching a muscle or being like a great athlete. <laughs> you don't expect yourself to perform the triathlon the first two days of the retreat. But over time, as you start stretching the heart, mind, body with this, you'll be able to do and include more and more with the loving-kindness. So I'd like to end with a um, poem by W.S. Merwin, who lives in Maui. He's our uh, poet laureate. 
but he made a condition on being a poet laureate that he wouldn't have to leave his home. And he's been planting um, palm trees, rare palm trees, on very difficult soil for many years. Um, So it's called Place. On the last day of the world, I would want to plant a tree. What for? Not for the fruit. The tree that bears the the fruit is not the one that was planted. I want the tree that stands in the earth for the first time, with the sun already going down, and the water touching its roots, in the earth full of the dead and the clouds passing, one by one, over its leaves. The newborn heart, metta is all about finding that connection, cultivating it, and seeing it everywhere. Let's sit for a minute. So we have a half hour next to walk on this blessed earth. And then we have the loving kindness chant. So we'll learn the loving kindness chant and have a short sitting tonight together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.